politically speaking, Ahithophel was right both times. Uh, in ancient Israel, to go up on uh, your father's bed, in other words, to have sex with uh, your father's wife or with one of your father's wives, to do that was to make a very bold and public statement about seizing your father's position. Ahithophel, in telling Absalom to pitch a tent on the roof of the palace and to sleep with the concubines that David had left in Jerusalem to look after the palace, Ahithophel is telling Absalom to take a step of no return. There's just no turning back from a thing like that. When Cortez, legend has it, when Cortez reached the New World, he burned his ships. As a result, his men were well motivated. Uh, That's a legend. Uh, But that's the basic substance of Ahithophel's advice to Absalom, who was in the beginning phases of his takeover bit of his coup de grace, sorry, coup d'etat. Burn your bridges, burn your ships. When the people see that you have completely and utterly committed yourself to this new venture, when they see that there's no turning back from this, they'll be encouraged, knowing that you're not half-hearted, knowing that you're not faint-hearted. In advising this course of action, Ahithophel was, of course, advising Absalom to do something utterly abhorrent, utterly evil, something that violates any number of Old Testament laws, beginning, of course, with the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. And so, in a sense, it is ironic that Ahithophel is advising Absalom to make the very mistake that David made. Take what you want without reference to God. Uh, David, of course, uh, committed adultery with Bathsheba and then arranged to have her husband uh, killed. And when the prophet Nathan caught up with David, he said, this is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I am going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Uh, God is sovereign over all of this. Uh, It's happening because God has decreed uh, that it will happen. God is Uh, sovereign over this thing. God is sovereign over everything. He always is. It doesn't necessarily mean that he's happy about what's happening. Uh, Absalom, who murdered his half-brother Amnon in revenge for Amnon raping his sister Tamar, uh, Absalom has now himself become a rapist. Uh, uh, Absalom, in this act, is also taking revenge upon his father, David, who cruelly ignored him and avoided him for two years. This will get Dad's attention. And it does. This is about revenge. The, The irony of revenge is that it always conforms us to the image of our enemy, making us their imitators. 
we, we always have a choice when it comes to, to those who are our enemies, when it comes to those who, who do us wrong. We always have a choice between two. We can either love our enemies and forgive them or become exactly like them in their image. And seeing as imitation is the most sincere form of worship, uh, we either forgive them or worship them. Uh, that's the irony of revenge. Um, well, so Athanol was, politically speaking, he was right about that. Uh, the second time Ahithophel gave advice, he, politically speaking, he was equally right. Um, what we're doing is we're, we're following the last third of King David's life from the second book of Samuel in the Old Testament. And, and over the last few weeks, we've read together about how David's son, Absalom, decided to mount a coup and seize power. And we've read about how David, in the face of this, fled. Um, so then, because our narrator has, has given us a bird's-eye view of the action, we, we already know that as this unfolds, David is not far from Jerusalem. In one day, David and his companions, it's taken them a whole day, but they've walked about 30 kilometers They've walked down a steep, winding, descending path, descending about 3,700 feet from Jerusalem to um, the Jordan River, which they haven't yet crossed. There's no bridge. They have to get across it somehow. There's no bridge. But they're now, basically, until they, until they uh, devote themselves to the exercise of crossing that river, they're trapped by the river and by the steep canyons on both sides. Uh, they've spent all day walking. David is exhausted. So are the people with him. He's traveling slowly because there are families with him, women with children. Ahithophel, we know this. Ahithophel is exactly right. Choose a small fighting force, not a huge army, 12,000 crack troops who are able to move swiftly. Go now. It's sunset. Do this thing before dawn. At dawn, they'll cross the river and the war will be lost. Attack immediately before he gets across the Jordan. If David gets across the Jordan, the game is up. If David is able to rest and regroup in the Transjordan, he will always be able to control uh, the engagement thereafter. He'll be impossible to defeat. Cut the head off the snake. Do it now, and your problems will be solved. And we all know that Ahithophel is right and we know that if Absalom had followed that advice, it would have taken a miracle to save David. But for some reason, Absalom stalls, choosing to get a second opinion. And he chooses to listen to Hushai. Hushai also manages to paint a convincing picture. But it's a picture of possible defeat and, and fear. It's a convincing picture. David and his men are highly experienced soldiers. That's true. Trained in ambush and guerrilla tactics. That's true. Fighting like a she-bear robbed of her cubs when, when cornered. That's true. Knowing the importance of hiding David away. That's true. Although, in actual fact, they haven't done it. Hoshai's conclusion, if the initial attack fails, the courage of everyone who is with you will fail and this whole endeavor will come crashing down. So, Here's my advice, Hoshai says. Stop. Take your time. Don't blunder into anything. 
Take the time to build a mighty army. Wait for everyone to assemble from the length and depth and breadth of Israel. Then attack as one huge overwhelming force. That's convincing. Um, Absalom is about to take that advice and Absalom in doing so is about to make pretty much the same mistake uh, that Adolf Hitler made in 1940. Uh, Hitler had the entire British army on the run and surrounded and stuck on a beach, the the beaches of Dunkirk. They were beaten and they were surrounded and they were about to be overrun by Hitler's tanks. But Hitler ordered the tanks to stop. Hitler was worried about overreaching. He was worried about the length of the supply chain running right across France. But in stopping... Hitler lost momentum. He took a break. He toured Paris, that he'd recently conquered, and took in the sights. Even after Dunkirk, if he just kept going, even after the British army had escaped, um, if he just immediately crossed the channel, World War II would have ended in his favor. The, The Americans, of course, as we remember, were neutral at that time. And they gave Britain two weeks. Well, Absalom and his men (laughs) were convinced by Hushai, and they took the bait. They stopped, they waited, and they lost momentum. It might be interesting to analyze psychologically why Hushai's counsel prevailed, how Absalom was manipulated by this counsel of fear of failure. That would be interesting, but actually the narrator instead of giving us a psychological analysis, gives us a theological analysis. And he tells us exactly the ultimate reason why Hushai's counsel prevailed and why um, while Ahithophel's counsel floundered. The explanation is found in verse 14. For the Lord had determined to frustrate the good advice of Ahithophel in order to bring disaster on Absalom. This is the Lord's doing. And in telling us that this is the Lord's doing, the narrator creates some very interesting tensions for us through irony. You see, um, David is on the run because God is disciplining him. All of this is happening because God is punishing, to use that word loosely for a moment, God is punishing David. As the prophet Nathan said in response to David's committing adultery with Bathsheba and then arranging the death of her husband, Uriah the Hittite, now this is what the Lord says, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says, out of your own household I am going to bring calamity on you. It is ironic to see how God is now fighting for David, acting so as to save him, arranging the downfall of David's enemies. God is doing that. It's in black and white, verse 14. And that's, that's beautifully ironic because we see that God is uh, punishing David and fighting for David at the same time. How can both things be true? Well, actually, we worked out the answer to that last week. And the sermon is available on our website if you'd like to listen to it. 
And the answer is actually quite simple, that, that most human beings, to some degree or another, we experience correction as rejection, and we act that way. But no, with God, correction is acceptance. Um, he's not rejecting David. He's accepting him, accepting him as son. God is disciplining David because God loves David and will never forsake or abandon him. The fact that David is having to learn some very hard lessons is not evidence of the absence of God or the deficiency of God's love for him, but rather it's the reverse. Hardship, even unjust suffering, is God's best plan for his son, whom he loves, in order that David, a son of God, might be conformed even more to God's image and likeness as his son. And uh, Jesus looked at him and loved him and said, boy, have I got a plan for you. This is my best. Sell everything. Give the money to the poor. Then come, follow me. When, when, when such things happen uh, to David or to us, we are walking in the footsteps of Jesus who suffered unjustly in order that we might be saved. So that's an irony. Both things are true. God is disciplining David. God is saving David. Here's another irony, another tension. God is fighting for David by way of answering David's prayer. Back last chapter, last week we read... Um, now David, verse 31, chapter 15, now David had been told, chapter 15, verse 31, now David had been told, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So David prayed, Lord, turn Ahithophel's counsel into foolishness. The Lord is answering David's prayer, but he's also blessing David's work. We saw last week how David turned Hushai away from following. Hushai wanted to go with David. But David said, you'll only be a burden to me. Go back to Jerusalem and be my secret service agent. Be my spy. In our text today, God blesses a lot of deception. Hushai misleads Absalom. Although, interestingly enough, technically he never lies to him. Um, it's just this masterclass of double meaning. Um, perhaps a little bit clearer in Hebrew because English is a very precise language. Hebrew is full of, full of um, double meanings anyway, but you can go back and have a look for yourself sometime. Everything that Hushai says to Absalom is, is, can be taken in two ways. Long live the king! Long live the king! Which king? It doesn't specify. Yes, I will serve the son just as I have served the father. How has he served the father? Faithfully. How now will he serve the son? By being faithful to the father. Um, it's a masterclass in double entendre. On the other hand, though, when Jonathan and Ahimaz uh, are on the run with intelligence for David, the housewife of Bahrim acts so as, so as to deceive, you know, the whole carpet over the well thing, she deceives the police officers and then she lies to, the, to their faces. Oh, they're gone. And God blesses it. 
Um, is it okay then for Christians to lie and deceive? Or can deception ever be justified? Well, they're excellent questions that I plan not to answer this morning because I, I don't have time. But, but the prevalence of deception is too great in this text to ignore it completely. Um, and I think it's there for the purposes of irony. The, the narrator is expecting us to see that actually uh, God can outsmart the smart, God can outmaneuver the dodgy, and God can outwit the strategist. All conspiracies against God's truth, all conspiracies, every plan against the sovereign rule of his Messiah will unravel sooner or later. And that's as true today as it's ever been in any other age. I, I also think that the narrator is expecting us to see how vulnerable Absalom is because he doesn't pray. He doesn't inquire of the Lord. Um, when, when David doesn't know what to do, he knows what to do, and that's pray. Um, prayer makes you safe because, because when you ask God for wisdom, he gives it. When you ask God to save you, he does. When, when you ask God to guide you, he will. Um, God protects people from deception one way or the other. He guides us even if we don't recognize his guidance. He still guides us. Uh, but Absalom, of course, can't pray because he knows already what God would say. God would call him to, if he entered into the presence of God, God would call him to repent. He, he, he would be reminded, you're not the Messiah. You're not the king of Israel. You have no reason to be in the palace of the king. So then what we see is that although Absalom is defeated by deception, He's already given himself over to deception as a decision of his own will. The whole coup attempt is a lie. He is not the Lord's anointed. Absalom is not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. Sorry, I couldn't quite resist that one. I could resist it. I just chose not to. <clears throat> um. Absalom is defeated by deception because actually, ultimately, that was his choice, uh, to believe a delusion. And so lastly, to the conclusion of the passage, which is the end of Ahithophel, verse 23. When Ahithophel saw that his advice had not been followed, he saddled his donkey and set out for his house in his own hometown. He put his house in order and then he hanged himself. So he died and was buried in his father's tomb. Uh, now, in, um, uh, in, in making some comments about this guy uh, committing suicide, uh, we should always be extremely careful when it comes to making comments about suicide. Uh, in our culture, in our times, suicide, uh, perhaps relating to depression or other mental illnesses or relating to bullying or abuse or suicide, perhaps in the context of the euthanasia debate, all of these things are extremely sensitive topics. Um, and that's because these things are all connected in one way or another with tragedy. When we encounter 
suicide in the Old Testament, we encounter it as a rhetorical device. In other words, we encounter it as a literary feature in a story that is being told to make a point. And so we need to read it in that light. Um, so then, in the context of this story, I think we are meant to see Ahithophel killing himself not as tragedy, but rather as irony, perhaps even the crowning irony to a passage rich with irony. When Ahithophel sees that his advice has not been followed, he sees immediately that David will regain power. It's only a matter of time. This has already been lost. Before anybody else sees it, Ahithophel, this genius of advice and, and planning and strategy, he sees it in 32 moves time, it's checkmate, and that's inevitable. Just hit the king over now. And he sees it. When David regains the throne, he will be executed. Ahithophel will be executed as a traitor and conspirator. Seeing the writing on the wall, he carefully, systematically, methodically, puts his house in order and takes his own life. But to take your own life from a biblical perspective is the last word in foolishness because it is to cut yourself off by your own hand from your only chance of help, which is the Lord. And the Lord is the God of the living, not of the dead. Ahithophel's death is ironic because here is a really smart guy doing something that ultimately is incredibly stupid. Adolf Hitler springs to mind again. He took his own life. As the Russians were closing in on one side and the Americans and the British on the other and the end of World War II was only two days away, he shot himself in the head. He'd survived many assassination attempts. The Russians were trying to kill him, the British, the Americans, even some Germans were trying to kill him. But here is an extraordinary irony that in the end, he killed himself. And evil is ultimately self-defeating. Adolf Hitler and Ahithophel were actually both really, really smart men. Possibly what we might call geniuses. Uh, but even the finest human intellect, if exercised without reference to God defeats itself. So here we have Ahithophel taking his own life, but in contrast, we have David, who even when his own son is trying to kill him, even when God is punishing him, even when he's on the run and exhausted, hungry and homeless, he still doesn't give up. He's hard-pressed on every side, but not crushed. He's confounded, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not abandoned. Struck down, but not destroyed. Why? Because he knows that God loves him. Because he knows that even when God is against him, God is still for him. And because he knows that there is always hope. And there is. There is most assuredly always a future hope for those who put their trust in 
in the Lord. And at the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all evermore. Amen.